chapter 13, book of Mark, 13. I'm glad they gave me a 40 minutes less left to cover 2,000 years of history. <coughs> I will do my best, I promise. <clears throat> what we're looking at is the last week in the life of Christ. It's a Tuesday afternoon where he makes this address, one of his last public addresses. It's April of the year 30 A.D., and knowing the urgency of the hour, knowing the lateness of the hour, Jesus feels very impressed to share with his disciples what lies ahead, what the church can look forward to. Now, we've got the advantage of looking back over the last 2,000 years. They didn't. They didn't. So they took all of this, and, and I'm not sure that they understood all of it by any stretch of the imagination, any more than you and I do today. When is Christ coming back? When he's good and ready. When he feels like it. It says in Galatians 4, 4, he came in the perfection of time. The first time he came, he'll do the same the next time. But I believe that his coming is nearer now than when we first believed. I believe that with all of my heart. Because Jesus outlined for his disciples what they could look forward to experiencing themselves. And then he telescoped that out into a time period that looks remarkably like our own today. A time where there is the potential for mass destruction on a level that the earth has never witnessed before the advent of the nuclear age. So he touches on things that the disciples could have only put in their back pocket and said, we'll think on this for a good long time. Because it is fairly complicated, and I don't want to overwhelm anybody uh, this morning with, with sheer information. Know this, God loves you. If you're saved, He's filled you with His Holy Spirit, and you have a sense of anticipation of the nearness of the hour. And here's the good news, He's coming again. He's coming again. And the first thing He's going to do is put us on a jet elevator right up into heaven, into His presence, in an event we call the rapture of the church, which means to be snatched off the face of the earth instantly. And Corinthians says, in the twinkling of an eye. That's cool. I, I've been reading in intelligence journals lately about China's development of hypersonic glide vehicles to launch their nuclear weapons with. Some of them are independently targeted and their ballistic missiles have the capability of carrying 10 nuclear warheads on each single missile. They seem to be uh, somewhat ahead of us on the, in the area of hypersonics, which is six times the speed of sound or faster, which means you can't stop it, you can't prepare for it, you can't shoot it down. That's a pretty formidable technology that is just in the infancy in the United States way of thinking, but we're looking at directed energy particle weapons. We're looking at using an electromagnetic pulse for a weapon. Just imagine if simultaneously on both coasts, on cargo container ships, and in the port of Louisiana, in the middle of the United States down south, just imagine if three large electromagnetic pulse weapons were detonated at the same time. No cell phones. No TV, no banking, and in 36 hours, all of the food market shelves will be empty. No technology, no Facebook, no Twitter, no Instagram. Your teenagers are going to go up and smoke. What do I do? 
it, it'll, it'll be like we were instantly thrown back to the Stone Age. And I dare say most of the Christian community is not ready for that. I mean, how many of you are deeply invested in today's technology? Technology is wonderful, and it can be used for the Lord's purposes, but it is fragile. It's a fragile technology that can easily be hacked. I mean, I can't tell you how many debit cards my bank has reissued because my account had been hacked. A time is coming where they, we won't have debit cards at all. In fact, have you noticed the movement historically away from hard currency to cryptocurrencies? I mean, back in the old days, a dollar bill was tied to a gold standard. In fact, it was law that you could not print more money in paper form than you had sitting in the depositories like Fort Knox in Tennessee and cover that same amount in gold. For, for the first 150 years of this nation's existence, it was that way. We were tied to a gold standard, and the government could not print more money than they had in gold reserves. And as we got away from that, the next thing in the 1950s uh, and, and thereafter, you saw on your dollar bills, it said silver certificate. Now it was tied to a less precious metal, which makes our currency worth less. That just makes sense. And because we're getting away from people being able to steal your money from banks or off of your purse and via robbery, we've gone to increasingly more and more digital means. And we thought in that digital domain there was safety until FTX fell and the cryptocurrency global market collapsed overnight and people lost trillions of dollars globally. What is next? It's a fragile currency. Debit cards can be stolen or misplaced. Or if you're like me in your wallet, if you're a guy, you notice that after a while your, your brand new card doesn't work at Walmart anymore because it's curved to the curvature of your, you know. <clears throat> and so every once in a while I have to take it out and turn it around so it's not quite so curved and try to recurve it the other way. It's still a fragile technology. It's still hackable. What's next? Something that's tattooed on you that can't be removed or stolen. Whether it's visible or invisible isn't the point, but the mark of the beast is coming, and we have set up our global currencies for that day and event. We are right on the brink of that. that we've already uh, had embedded chips, RFDI chips, in our animals for 30 years. We can track them anywhere if you lose your pet and they've got one of those embedded chips. Well, maybe an embedded chip in you would serve the same purpose. Yeah, some of you say, I don't think I'll sign up for that. Well, let me just tell you this. If somebody says, look, your cards can be stolen, so we're just going to put an invisible tattoo on your right hand or your forehead. Won't hurt much at all, less than a tattoo. And uh, then all you have to do is go into Walmart and scan your forehead. <laughs> or better, your right hand. But... Don't miss the point. It, it will be impossible during the reign of the Antichrist to buy and sell anything without that mark, which means many tribulation saints will die of simple starvation. We're moving in that direction. We are, I can see all of the pieces on this three-dimensional chessboard, and God, it, the next move is checkmate. The rapture of the church occurs, and what is left behind in this world? Oh. What a world. That's what Mark 13 
talks about, the signs of the end of the age. He's speaking to just a handful of unlearned fishermen and zealots and tax collectors who have no idea. They don't have degrees in history. They don't know what the future holds, and they struggle with understanding some of this. Now, it is said that Mark was writing down the memoirs of Peter. So as you cross-reference this with Matthew 24 and Luke's account of this same, what is called the Olivet Discourse, because it was preached on the Mount of Olives to his disciples, uh, they're going to be different because Peter, as a fisherman, has some things that are very important to him that are not important to Luke as a physician, that were not as important to Matthew as a tax collector. So you have these independent accounts that share much of the same material, but from different viewpoints. I mean, we would do that if there were 10 of us that witnessed an accident outside. One of you might say, well, I noticed the color of the cars, or oh, I saw them both talking on their text phone, or boy, those plastic bumpers sure went up in flames quick. You know, we would notice different things about the same accident. It doesn't mean that any of your accounts are wrong, but collectively we have a very grand picture of what happened in that accident. The gospel accounts of the second coming of Christ are much the same thing. I do not want to overwhelm you today or with history or future technologies that are emerging even today as we speak, but I want you to know, if nothing else, Jesus is coming back soon. I don't know where you personally are at spiritually, but he's coming back for his own, that love him, that seek his face, that worship him. Not trying to rattle your cage, but religious people don't qualify as the people of God simply because they're religious. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you haven't confessed and repented of your sins before him, asked him to be your Lord and the Savior and fill you with his Holy Spirit, you're not going up in the rapture and you will be here to go through seven years of unmitigated hell that are outlined for us in the judgments of God in Revelation 6 through 19. You don't want to be here for that. It starts off with global thermonuclear war. It starts off with a quarter of the entire Earth's population being decimated in that initial nuclear exchange. You don't want to be here for that. If you don't know Jesus this morning at any point in time, you can bow your head and pray in your heart of hearts, Jesus, the world seems to be out of control and getting worse by the day. Would you forgive me my sins? I repent of my sins and ask that you be my Lord and God and Savior and protect me. Watch over me. I don't want to be here to see the mark of the beast. I don't want to be here to see global thermonuclear warfare. I just pray that you get me ready for the next event on the church's calendar, which is the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you pray that prayer this morning at any point in time, you're saved. You are saved. Walk in that salvation. Read and pray and find a, a good Bible. Believe in church that loves Jesus and, and can feed you as the Lamb of God that you now become once you're saved. Mark 13 touches on all of these issues, but just put yourself in the, within the hearing range of the disciples as Jesus instructs them in these issues. They were impressed with the same things that you and I are often impressed with, it says in verse 1, as he was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. They're coming down from the temple mount, which should have been one of the ancient wonders of, of, of the world. 
It was a magnificent edifice. Josephus says that at sunrise, whatever was not covered in gleaming white limestone was covered in gold, and it would dazzle the eyes. As you approached Jerusalem and made that climb, the ascent up to the Temple Mount area, it said from a distance it was so gleaming white in the right light that it looked like there was snow atop the mountain, according to Josephus. And as they got closer, <clears throat> this polished, beautiful edifice that had been 40 years under construction by uh, Herod the Great, uh, Jesus then said, oh, you, you're impressed by the architecture. You ever been to a fancy church with lots of money? A big one? I mean, where they got the gold faucets and the bathrooms, that kind of stuff, you know? And you think, wow. I, I as a kid, used to go up to St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City with its tall spires that seem to reach the heavens, and you go inside. The altar at St. Patrick's is bigger than the entire footprint of this church. It is huge. It is absolutely huge. It's overwhelming and echoes in the place. You know what the sad part is? It's not a church anymore. It's a tourist attraction. They don't have church services there anymore. Religion has given way to tourism. But the buildings are still left behind and people come by the droves uh, year after year and go, ooh, ah, my. Well, that's exactly what the, what the disciples are doing. It's like a tourist in New York City going, look at these tall buildings. Ooh, look at the spires of St. Patrick's Cathedral. And th such things impress the flesh. Do not impress the Lord. The thing, understand this, you might want to write this down. Most typically, the things that you or I are impressed with in this world do not impress the Lord. Whether it be TV, personality, sports figures, rich people, whatever. Uh, the things that we think are, wow, really cool, really, really, whatever. Jesus is going, that's the things of the world. Not the things of the Spirit. The things of the Spirit will be revealed to us when we're caught up into heaven, stand before the throne of Almighty God with a hundred million angels in attendance and who knows how many billions of believers singing His praise and worship and adoration. And nobody up there is saying, ooh, I really miss the architecture of St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City. There won't be anything comparable to God. But the disciples are duly impressed. In fact, the one and only trip I took to Israel uh, one time, they had just excavated out the southwest side of, of Herod's temple, and they dug it down to the level of Jesus' time. And I got to walk on the very pavement stones that Jesus and his disciples walked on as they went to and from this temple area. Rabbi's tunnel was dug down, and it went along the basement, if you will, or the foundation stones of the temple that was atop it. The temple itself was destroyed, but the Romans did not destroy the foundation stones. And I saw one of those. I measured it myself. One stone was 12 foot high, 12 foot wide, and 55 feet long. And it fit so tightly together you couldn't put a, a piece of paper between the stones. How did they do that? The stone is said to weigh 681 tons. It would be difficult to find a crane today able to pick that up and put it into place. How in the world did they do that before the advent of powered equipment? I have no idea. 
I have no idea. It leaves people scratching their heads today. But you think about these massive, massive stones that were used in the construction. Well, no wonder the disciples were impressed. That's an impressive stone. I mean, if I asked you to move it a quarter of an inch, this is a way to bring it in line, how would you do that exactly? Everybody push at the same time and grunt, really? 681 tons in one rock, and they have thousands of these that serve as the foundation stones that are still visible today. As we went down uh, what is called Rabbi's Tunnel, down on that south uh, west side of the temple, what was fascinating to me is we came across at one point this arch which led directly under the Temple Mount itself that's controlled by the Muslims today. You know what it said in ancient Hebrew on top of this arch? I couldn't believe it. It said, this way to the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies like they had in the tabernacle? You mean not the holy place, but the most holy place where the ark was and the presence of God and the table of showbread and the menorah? You mean that Holy of Holies? Yeah. When the Jews started digging under there and doing their excavations, they were stopped by the, the Palestinian police that guard the waft as they're called, that guard the top of the Temple Mount. They stopped the excavation under the pretext that it might cause damage to the foundation of the Dome of the Rock upstairs. Yeah. They don't want Jews substantiating their own history, so they've closed it off. They've closed it off as if they could silence God him, himself. That, it's absolutely ridiculous to me. And Jesus said, look at verse 2. Oh, you're impressed? By these grand buildings, Jesus said, not one stone here will be left on another. These are big stones, remember? Big stones. Everyone will be thrown down. When they had excavated out that southwest corner of the Temple Mount area down to the, air, the ground level that Jesus walked, you could see these huge, enormous, great big blocks of limestone that had been cut and polished, that had been thrown off from a great height and gone down and embedded themselves in the pavement below. And the archaeologists there have left those stones so you could see what Jesus was talking about. Not one stone would be turned, would be left on top of another. How did that happen and why? Why would the Romans, as they besieged Jerusalem in 780, why would they even bother? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Titus, when he came in with his various legions, told them specifically, do not burn the temple. He considered it one of the ancient wonders of the world. And he told his troops, don't do it. Well, anyway, as all of Jerusalem was on fire and the people being slaughtered, according to Josephus, rivers of blood ran down the streets as the Romans butchered every man, woman, child, and animal they came across. In 70 AD, they started their siege in April of that year and finished it, breached the walls, and burned the temple to the ground uh, in September of, that, of 70 AD. It was a remarkable thing. Apparently, in their bloodlust, one of the Roman soldiers threw a torch inside the temple. And because of all of the fancy and ornate cedar paneling that was used inside, the thing caught flames instantly and shot up. And because the entire interior was covered in pure gold, under the heat, 
the gold itself melted and began falling in between the cracks of the, the foundation stones of the temple. And in their lust for money and gold, as they saw this, they absolutely destroyed the temple, not leaving one stone atop another so they could get to the gold. And Titus couldn't stop his own troops. Tens of thousands of, of people up there just out of control. Not one stone left on top of another in exactly 40 years. To the month, 40 years after Jesus said this in April of 30 AD, 40 years later, some people say that is one generation, that was fulfilled. They didn't understand at the time how, but in 70 AD, the Romans had enough of the rebellion by the Jewish people as they anticipated the coming of their Messiah. Verse 3 then is, well, hmm. let, me, let me just share one more story. When I was over in Israel, I tried to get as much information as I could because I was there by the good graces of the travel company that said if you can get enough people in your church to go to Israel, we'll let you go to, for free. And that was great because I was working a kind of a minimum wage job at the time and I couldn't afford to rub two nickels together, so we went over there. And to be able to tour the old city of Jerusalem, many of the historical sites that we have in the Bible, it, it, just changed, it was a life changer for sure. We got to tour the Temple Mount Museum. I personally got to talk to the doctorate archaeologist who was the head of the Temple Mount Museum. They have already rebuilt another seven-foot menorah, the seven-branched candle stand that's provide light in the temple. They've already rebuilt that. It's hidden right now but to, behind plexiglass that's about this thick on all sides, and it's on a pedestal guarded with a guy with an M16. So nobody's going to take it anytime soon, but it is solid gold. They have everything they need to reenact the priesthood. And I talked to the curator. She was a, a wonderful, well-known, uh, extremely knowledgeable doctorate-level archaeologist. And I said, because you Jewish people have rejected Jesus Christ as the Messiah, how do you know the Messiah when he comes? Her answer dropped me almost to my knees instantly. She said, We'll know it because the Messiah will lead us in the rebuilding of our temple. Well, my Bible says that's what the Antichrist is going to do. In other words, the nation of Israel today has set itself up to embrace not Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but the Antichrist as God. And the Bible speaks to that as well. The Antichrist will do it. It says in Daniel 9 and verse 27, I'll put it up here for you on the screen so you can follow along. Uh, he will, that is the Antichrist, he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. A Hebrew way of saying seven years. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven-year period. In the middle of that seven-year period, three and a half years in, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering on a wing of the temple he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out upon him. Look at this carefully. Notice what he says. The Antichrist will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of the temple, the temple will be rebuilt. What is this covenant? 
I believe with all of my heart it'll be the first time in America that anyone has come up with a peace plan that works for the Palestinians and the Jews, the Muslim community, the Christian and Jewish community. Dr. Asher Kaufman, one of the most premier archaeologists that has never ever been known in the nation of Israel, did incredible calculations, and by his estimates, Solomon's temple stood 110 feet to the north of the Dome of the Rock that's there today. In other words, the Antichrist will probably put a wall of separation between the two, allowing the Jews to rebuild their temple in its original place on the Temple Mount without disturbing anything about the Dome of the Rock. The Antichrist will barter that making this covenant to do so. It'll be the Palestinian peace plan that every nation on this earth has been trying to effect for the last 50 years. They'll never have peace giving land in exchange, but the Antichrist will present himself as the prince of peace, make a covenant between the two, allowing the Jews to rebuild their temple. That's the work of the Antichrist. And this doctorate-level curator at the museum, Temple Mount Museum, confirmed that. We're waiting for the Antichrist to allow us to rebuild the temple, although they'll be deceived into thinking he is the Messiah. <coughs> Excuse me, so I, I can see the Antichrist brokering this peace. I don't know why it hasn't dawned on anybody. You want to bring peace to the Middle East? Make the Arabs happy, the Muslim community happy, the Jewish community happy, and the Christian community happy. How do you do that? Build a wall, rebuild the temple. Ta-da! How come nobody has thought of that? Obama didn't think of that. Clinton didn't think of that before him. George Bush didn't think of that. Our president, president, Mr. Biden, has not thought of that. Simple plan. Everybody can have their cake and eat it too. But nobody's yet thought of that. The Antichrist will propose that. It'll be the biggest peace agreement that has ever been written in the history of mankind, and it will placate all comers. What a stroke of genius, the Antichrist, in, in doing this. That, that, that's an amazing thing to me. 110 feet from the Dome of the Rocks. There is today a, a small little Muslim shrine up there called the Dome of the Spirits. But that'll be a small price to pay for Palestinian peace. They'll allow that, and the temple can be rebuilt wall of separation between the two. Next, I want to take you over to Revelation 13. If you want to know what the number of Satan is, it's 13. So Revelation chapter 13 is all about who? Satan and his Antichrist. I want to pick it up at verse 14. Look up here if you don't have it handy in your Bible. <clears throat> it says of the Antichrist's false prophet, because of the signs that he was given to do on behalf of the first beast, which is the Antichrist himself. Oh, thank you, Tracy. You're a good man. Needs more honey. <laughs> I love you, man. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Revelation 13. Are you there? Say I'm there. Good. So this is the Antichrist's false prophet. Because of the signs he was given to do on behalf of the first beast, the Antichrist himself. He, do you see this is an unholy trinity? you got Satan indwelling the Antichrist and a false prophet acting in the role of the Holy Spirit. It's an unholy trinity mimicking the trinity of God. 
Interesting. Because Satan has always desired to be worshipped as God. Remember that he made Jesus that offer in his wilderness temptations. He showed him all of the kingdoms of this world and says, all of these are mine and I can give them to anyone I want, Luke says. If you'll just worship and bow down to me. Here's what he said. You can have your millennial kingdom. You can have it for not just a thousand years, but for all eternity. And you can do it and have it all without having to be nailed to a cross. What a temptation that must have been as the man, Jesus, was saying, well, I'm not exactly looking forward to being crucified and whipped and beaten and thrown in a cold, damp tomb after I'm dead my body for Jesus. That's a real temptation. You can have everything your Father promised you without going to the cross. What's wrong with that plan? It's a lie. None of us could have been saved if Jesus didn't shed his blood for us. Without the shedding of blood, Hebrews says, there is no forgiveness of sins. No religious ritual, no amount of good works can substitute the blood of God's own Son. So He is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes unto the Father except through Him, Jesus Christ. Getting back to the Revelation text, because of the signs He was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, the Antichrist, He deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He looks like a a handsome young probably European guy who is so diplomatic and so charming, you just can't help but fall in love with the guy if you're in the flesh and don't have the Spirit of God. And yet, don't we today put the same politicians in office? Ooh, look at his hair. What's hair got to do with competence? Oh, but he's so young, he's so handsome, he works out. He's got tattoos. So what? He may be an imbecile. He may have the IQ of a kumquat, and you're going to put him in the office because what? He's a good-looking politician? I mean, look at the Justin Trudeau up in Canada. Good-looking. He's probably the Antichrist, but hey, they put him in office time after time after time because he's got the hair. He's got the do. He's got the skinny jeans. Yeah, Really. We tend to be so shallow sometimes in the people we put into important political offices. But you only do that when you're thinking in the flesh instead of the spirit. So in all elections, please, please prayerfully choose the candidate that will best represent Jesus Christ and his intentions for for the people that they serve. I think the public servants have forgotten that's what politicians used to be called, public servants. They seem to do and say anything to get into office and then do whatever they want. And you can't do a thing about it until the next election cycle. And that's not working. Not working for me and not working for you. The tea's working on my throat, though. Praise God. Anybody want some? I'll pass it around. I'm sure there's no germs attached to that. Verse 15, this false prophet Revelation chapter 13 was given the power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, 
which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. Anyone, if anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is a man's number. His number is 666. The number seven in the Bible is used to symbolize perfection, godliness, and wholeness. This is one number short of that. It's the number of man. But notice that it is a trinity, not of God, but a trinity of man. His number is 666 because it is an unholy trinity between Satan, the false prophet, and the Antichrist. That's why it's a trinity. And yet it falls short of God's level of perfection, and it will be a coalition of nations and regions of this world under the control of the Antichrist. These are interesting days that we live in. Interesting days. Everybody thought, well, cryptocurrency will get rid of all of the problems we have today with theft and money and, and things like that. But we originally had a, were tied to a gold standard. That made good sense to me. It meant your dollar bill worth its weight in gold, literally. And then cryptocurrency. Everybody's, I heard everybody, Pastor Jim, you got to buy into FTX, man. You got to buy cryptocurrency. And I know people that sunk millions of dollars into cryptocurrency only to have the whole Ponzi scheme come down in a matter of a few years. Don't, cryptocurrency, here's how it's sold. If I was selling cryptocurrency, it would go something like this. I want you to give me real money, and I'm going to give you digital money. You give me real money, and I'll give you what? Ones and zeros in your computer? Are you kidding me? Bad enough that they give me paper at the bank and call it money. It used to mean something. It used to be tied to a standard of either gold or silver. But money could be stolen, cryptocurrency can meet its downfall on the markets. Debit cards, got their problems, got their issues. What we need is something that can't be hacked, stolen, lost, or corrupted. Like the mark of the beast, it's coming. It's the next thing that will replace these fallen financial contraptions that we've invested in so far. Verse 3, as Jesus was back in Mark, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, it's so cool, it's just two miles east. You go down a minor ravine called the Cadron Valley, and then you walk up the Mount of Olives, a two-mile ridge of land, and from the top of the Mount of Olives, it overlooks, overlooks all of the Temple Mount area. So all of the millions of worshipers, because this is Passover season, would have been milling around the temple area, and you could see it all from the Mount of Olives. And so it is there that Jesus gives this his prophecies as they unfold here. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? They're asking, when will the temple be destroyed? And tell us what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled. If you factor in Matthew's account and Luke's account, they ask a third question. What will be the signs of the end of the times, signs of the end of the age? They ask, Three different questions. And Jesus, in his answer, kind of smooshes them all together, and here's why. The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the Jewish nation presages, prefigures the end times judgment that will be global in magnitude. 
So there's a localized judgment against the Jewish people. There, it morphs into, in the end times, a global judgment against those that have rejected God. Does that make sense to you? If the small one prefigures the big one, you can see that there's got to be a segue uh, from the one to the other, which Jesus covers here beginning in verse 5. And Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Isn't it interesting that he tells his own disciples the first thing they have to watch out for is that they, Christians, are not deceived? You mean it's possible to deceive Christians, Pastor Jim? You ever been deceived? You buy into cryptocurrency? <laughs> I'd rather have a cup of Starbucks, you know. You mean Christians can be deceived? Absolutely. And so he warns his own against being deceived by false teaching, false prophets, false evangelists on TV, false prophets that want your money, people that will... Be glad to come and tell you everything your itching ears want to hear if you'll just put them up in the Broadmoor Hotel, pick them up in a limousine uh, off their private jet at the airport and take care of them financially. Really? My first criteria is anytime somebody wants to minister to our people is, you going to take up an offering or do you need money up front? And if they say yes, I say no. It's a short conversation. We've had it many times because I don't want anybody ministering to you out of a desire to get rich by doing it. The kingdom of God is not about money, dear friends. It's not about money. It's not about TV. It's not about mega evangelism or packing out stadiums or being impressed with people that slap you in the forehead and they fall over backwards. That's not what it's about. It's about humility and brokenness before the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's where our journey as Christians becomes. But we can be deceived because there is a secular part of us that says, but they look at the millions of dollars they've got. So maybe I'll follow their false teaching. Well, look at the jet planes they got. Well, everybody's talking about that. Well, so-and-so sold millions of books. We should follow them. That's what we tend to do. And what Jesus is saying is because we're in the last days, you need to take a more discerning approach to life than that. Watch out, verse 5, that no one comes and deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming, I am he, I'm the, I'm the, the Messiah, I'm your deliverer, I'm the answer. I'm the politician that you really need to elect into office. Claiming, I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars... Yeah, we got plenty of those going on today. Do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. In other words, patience is required. They had no idea how much patience. We now know it to be about 2,000 years so far. But anticipate nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. Another translation is earthquakes in places you didn't anticipate. Earthquakes like down in Trinidad? We got earthquakes in Colorado? I thought we were safe from all that nonsense. Hawaii, volcanoes, earthquakes. Yeah, I get that. San Andreas Fault in California. Yeah, I get that. Colorado? Trinidad? Earthquakes? Interesting to watch those things. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. What's famine? Global starvation. Global starvation usually secondary to wars or droughts. 
We've seen both in our time. We're in a historic drought throughout the world. People are saying, oh, climate change, climate change. It's getting hotter. The ice caps are melting. The polar bears will have nowhere to sit. They'll have to swim. They seem to be doing just fine. Talking about the heating of planet Earth, read the book of Revelation. They ain't seen nothing yet. God's going to give power for the, to the sun to scorch the men of the earth and stop the hydrologic cycle. No wind, no clouds, and nothing but a blazing sun. And imagine temperatures of 150 degrees in New York City. They haven't seen anything yet. And I can tell you this, if we all set fire to our carbon-burning emitters today in your driveway and bought electric cars, we wouldn't make a dent of one-tenth of one percent in the global carbon emissions. We just got to own that one. In fact, Biden's own energy czar, John Kerry, said, America is, less, is, is responsible for less than 11% of all global emissions. Then sell those stupid electric cars to China and Russia and India and Pakistan. They're the polluters. It's not you and me. We got the, we, our cars today are squeaky clean. And yet China still enjoys third world status as a most favored trading nation? Really? Because they're, quote, a third world developing nation? They got nuclear weapons. They're developed. Hello? But we still grant them that, which means they're exempt from all carbon emission standards. Well, how convenient. You'd almost think that somebody was taking money from the Chinese to bust our chops and let them do nothing. But that's a topic for another day. <laughs> and that's all I will say about that. <clears throat> Verse 9, you must be on your guard. You will be handed over. Now he's speaking specifically to his disciples and what they will have to go through in their day and age. You must be on guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. That's whipped. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them and the gospel must first be preached to all nations. That is before the very end of the end, before Revelation 19 and Jesus comes back after Armageddon. Before that happens, it doesn't say the church is going to evangelize the world. It doesn't say the rapture can't happen before the world is evangelized. In fact, in the book of Revelation, you've got angels flying through the air declaring the gospel. You've got eagles flying through the air declaring the gospel. So even if the church has failed to evangelize every man, woman, and child on the planet, God's got it. God's got it. We have to learn to see what Scripture says. Some have said, well, Christ can't come back until we, the church, evangelize the whole world. That's not what it says. That's not what it says. He will do what the church has failed to do after the church is raptured and removed from this planet. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations Whenever you guys are arrested and brought to trial, don't worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time by the Holy Spirit, for it is not you speaking, it'll be the Holy Spirit. It'll be the Holy Spirit. I want to leave off here, otherwise I would have to sprint like a world-class Olympic athlete to get to the end of the chapter. So that's not going to happen. But I want to tell you what is going to happen in in the very near future, in the remaining portion of this. So put a little marker there by verse 12. 
That's where we're going to pick it up next week. If you want to know what's on the near horizon, you want to know what's the next economic crash, you want to know where America is at in biblical prophecy, the number one question I'm asked about end times prophecy, I'm going to explain all of that to you next Sunday. In the meantime, you will be on pins and needles. <laughs> but you can read ahead. It's not cheating. Let's stand and close in prayer, shall we? You're a good God. And regardless of how much we comprehend about end times biblical prophecy or not, I know this. My future is safe in your hands. I love you. I trust in you. You've redeemed me by your own blood, Lord Jesus. I owe you everything. And someday our voices will be joined together in a praise and worship chorus that will eclipse everything that has ever happened before in the history of the universe. What a joyous day that will be. There will be no more sorrow. You'll wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more mourning, no more pain, no more death, no more sorrow. I can't wait for that day, Lord. Give us the strength to get from this day to that day. Give us the strength, Lord, day in and day out to say no to the things of the flesh and yes to the things of the Spirit. I believe with all of my heart, Jesus, apart from you, I can do nothing. So I bow the knee, I humble the heart, and I swing wide open the door of my heart and ask that you search my heart and see if there be any wicked way there. Wash it away. Cleanse it out, Lord. Fill us again with your Holy Spirit, Lord, as we see that the day of your coming is nearer now than when we first believed. We love you. We praise you. We worship you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.